Well, hello everybody. Welcome to another edition of Ron the Bones and Around the Caves. I got Grizzly and Pal. Gumshoe guy here, the data miner profiler. Yeah. What's up, Aussie Sue? Hello, Denise. Uh, Jeremiah Sutton. Welcome to the show there. Michael Lewis, uh, FDL. Paranormal there. Hello, Catherine. How you doing there, Yolanda? What's shaking and making? Happy Father's Day. Yes, to everybody, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Pamela, Aussie Sue. Mm, interesting. Uh, so what's going on, Val? Happy Father's Day to you. Happy Father's Day as well. Uh, beautiful, beautiful 83 degrees, Detroit, Michigan. God bless the veterans downriver, Michigan, downriver, Detroit. Look out for the veterans. Say hello to them. Thankful. Be thankful of them. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, absolutely. Be thankful. So, yeah, Yolanda, hello there. So, why? Uh, so, what do you have in store for us today? <clears throat> today, we have Daniel Perez from California. Uh, he is the author of the Bigfoot Times newsletter. I think that's going to be an interesting show, and I think uh, Daniel has a lot to say. Let's bring him on and say hello to Daniel. All right, everybody, let's welcome Daniel. Dan to the show. Welcome, sir. How are you doing there? Welcome. I'm doing, I'm doing just fine. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you on our show today, sir. Um, thank you. I've taken uh, time of your busy day to come along and, and spend it with us. So, yeah. So, uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Well, I just turned 60. Uh, my origins in terms of uh, investigating and researching Bigfoot come from watching a movie at the theater, the walk-in theater, around 1973 when I was about 10 years old. And that movie was called The Legend of Boggy Creek. And that's what introduced me to the whole concept or subject matter of Bigfoot. Prior to that, I knew nothing of it and in the legend of boggy creek it was talking about the falk monster in arkansas so it took a little bit maybe about a year or so to make the connection that the falk monster was probably a bigfoot and uh there wasn't that much information at the time at the libraries about it but eventually i was able to find out the proper information and so that's how i got going and I've, i'm still going interesting yeah so that's how everybody gets started somehow that's interesting you got started that way what do you think val well daniel have you ever seen a uh, bigfoot sasquatch personally no i have never had a sighting but i've seen uh footprints uh on a couple of occasions uh one in hemet california 1979 or 1980 i always get the dates mixed up and you could think of Hammett for those people who need to visualize as halfway in between Los Angeles and San Diego, but away from the coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what had happened there is that uh, a couple had reported uh, multiple footprint finds and sounds and sightings. And so Doug Trapp and myself went to investigate and uh, we found on one instance because this is 79 1980 they didn't i don't think they had a phone in their house 
Mm-hmm. And so we said, let's just go down on the weekend and uh, see if we'd find them there. And they were not there. And we had made the drive from Los Angeles, maybe 70 miles or so. And we said, okay, now what? And said, well, let's just look around. Let's just look around in the hills. And it had rained quite a bit. And so we started, uh, we drove off a little bit and then we got out of the car and uh, started looking around and there was a, a creek that was created by the rain runoff. So it was a small creek that was eventually going to go dry when the rain had subsided. And when we were there, it wasn't raining, but uh, all the ground was wet. There was no dust whatsoever. And so on that occasion, we looked down near the creek and Doug and I both kind of had that holy blank blank moment and we saw the tracks and they kind of paralleled the creek and then crossed the creek. And to my memory, they were about 17 inches long. And so we were quite impressed. And he tried to make a plaster of Paris casting, but the plaster of Paris he had in his back trunk was already moist. So basically our efforts failed because when he poured it, that casting never set up and it just all crumbled. So. We got some photos, or at least I got some photos of the tracks. And what was very impressive was the heel that, to my memory, was about five inches wide. And we're talking the heel, not the ball of the foot. A second time was uh, interesting. Second time was August of 1986 in an area called the Monachi Meadows, which is kind of in the, I believe it's in the Inyo National Forest. And what had happened there was uh, there were some bridge builders making a footbridge over the Kern River uh, for the Pacific Crest Trail. And back then in 1986, uh, CNN was not nearly as big as it was then. And I received a call from them and they wanted, by then I was sort of known in the Bigfoot community. They wanted to know if I was gonna do anything with this report. And I told them, I don't even know about the report. And so they kind of, uh, actually, I think they mailed me like a tear sheet of the news. And so as soon as I got that within days, and as soon as I got it, uh, it stated that the bridge builders had a sighting, and there was about five of them. And it, it scared them so much that they left. They were actually set up there camped in the forest. And they left the area because the thing, whatever was out there, had come in near the camp, and they were just petrified. So I got there after the fact, I want to say within maybe 10, two weeks after or thereabouts. I remember it was August of 1986. And uh, so I proceeded to do a taped interview with some of the people that were there at a makeshift picnic table they had built out in the woods there. And it was during this uh, taped interview that uh, the guy... I think his name was Russell Pozovich or something like that. He casually mentioned, and it left tracks too. And as soon as I heard that, I just pressed the pause or the stop button on my recorder. And I said, what did you say? And he says, and it left tracks too. And I said, well, can we, can we see them right, right now? And he says, oh yeah, they're, they were right over here. And unfortunately, uh, those tracks were kind of made in a substrate that was kind of a sandy soil. So there wasn't any clear definition, but even by the time I got there, you could see where something had walked 
And I, I think I remember that they said that the, the, the prints were about 13 and a half inches long. And so there was no doubt that something had walked there. And so that was the second time that I had seen prints. And so from 79, 80 to 86, I was getting more and more hooked about this whole thing called Bigfoot long before the internet came along. Mm -hmm. And so I had seen with my own eyes these impressions in the ground and that was telling me that something had left them and so that kind of added fuel to the fire and so i continued on with my journey and it was prior to this that i got in touch with two of the greatest bigfooters that had ever lived in north america john green and renee de hinden mm -hmm. and uh this was all back in the snail mail days mm -hmm. and uh so they just hap I happened to purchase their books and at the back of their books, they had mailing addresses. So I sent letters off to both of them. And surprisingly, I got replies from both of them. And so that is how I developed this relationship as an investigator and researcher and colleague with both Renee and John Green. And so that went on until they eventually passed away. That's very good. That's very good. Now, I know from reading your material, and I'm pretty familiar with your material, um, you've been in these circles with with uh, Bobo Fay and uh, Moneymaker and that group. Um, you've been around a lot of these areas with these people, and you've, you've I think you've reported on a lot of these people in your uh, newsletter. What is the name of that newsletter again that you that you author, Daniel? Uh, the newsletter is called Bigfoot Times. Mm -hmm. And if you just click on BigfootTimes.net on the internet, you could find the newsletter. Mm -hmm. And it is now the longest running Bigfoot newsletter in the world. It's gone over a quarter of a century. Uh, we started, uh, of course, 25 years ago, and we're still publishing. We're in our 26th year, and it's actually a print publication that goes out in the postal mail. So it's not a digital newsletter. It's a real paper newsletter with ink on it, and people from all over the world get the newsletter. And I was just working on the address database of the members the other day, and by far the most the biggest membership comes from Ohio. You would think it would be Washington or Oregon or California. Mm -hmm. That's not so with the Bigfoot Times. Our biggest membership is from the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of an interesting tidbit. But yeah, I've reported on everything and anything Bigfoot and hairy hominids from all over the world in the newsletter over this quarter century. Yeah, it's quite it's quite thorough, and like I said, I've I've read it for some times, uh, even before I subscribed, or actually my wife subscribed for me. Um, and it's interesting that you mention Ohio. I've so many times I see these uh, these uh, news articles in the press that uh, list the top ten states. You've seen those before, Daniel. You've seen those sure. before, Grizz. The top ten yeah. states in the United States. And they come up with all these wonderful, fantastical uh, uh, statistics and stuff. Daniel, as you know, I'm a uh, Bigfoot data miner. Um, if you're familiar with my work, I've done this 
for 12 years, 12, 13 years. And I'm, I'm pretty thorough at what I do. Having gone through over 138,000 reports, I analyze, read these reports and, and uh, categorize these in groups and subgroups. And according to, and I'm looking at the paperwork right here, according to, to my information, I don't care what anybody else says. I could care less. Number one is California. Number two is Michigan. Number three is British Columbia. Number four, Washington. Number five, Ohio. Number six, Oregon. Number seven, Pennsylvania. Number eight, Alaska. Who, who would tell? Uh, number nine, Texas. Number 10, Tennessee. Now, I've seen all kinds of numbers, you know, this source said that, and this source. I'm, I'm just showing you what, what the numbers say, what the numbers say, what the figures show. Um, there's a lot of subterfuge and deception in Bigfootery. Um, as a former law enforcement officer, I, I, I look at this stuff and I see it for what it is. Now, uh, you've been around Moneymaker and Bobo and, and these guys. And I have no no reason to doubt that that they are genuine people. These are these are good people. They see what they see. They report what they report. Uh, the last time that you and I had a had a a good sit down chit chat was back when you were in Michigan, and and I you think... con and you contacted me about the Monroe Monster, the 1965 Monroe Monster. Uh, yes. Uh... I, let me uh, interject real quick. We'll talk about the Monroe monster from the 60s. Mm -hmm. Interesting story about Matt Moneymaker. Mm -hmm. I didn't know him from Adam, mm -hmm. but when I spoke at uh, in June of 1989, there was the international, let's see, I forget the name, but this was the group that was, gosh, I'm, I'm, Blanking on the names, but we had a, a Bigfoot meet for the Sasquatch symposium that was Richard Greenwell, Grover Krantz, and some other people. The, the name just escapes me, mm -hmm. but this was in Pullman, Washington at Washington State University. And so I spoke at that conference. And then when I got back home, living at the time in Norwalk, California, a suburb of Los Angeles, I received a phone call from a guy named Matt Moneymaker. And so uh, I didn't know him from Adam at the time, but he was very enthusiastic about everything. And so I went out to see him and he was just ecstatic about the whole subject like I was. And then he went off, he was actually in college at the time. And then he went off to Ohio for his wife's degree or something like that, and then returned to California. But I didn't know he would go on to co-found the BFRO website, which I think is quite excellent. But uh, so that's my little story about money, Matt Moneymaker. But let's continue on to Monroe, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And that report, and the lady's name escapes me right now, but that report just fascinates me to new, no end in the fact that not only was she an eyewitness in a vehicle that apparently stalled on the road, but her mother was with her too. Mm -hmm. And they had a very close up encounter, I guess in 1965 with a Bigfoot. And uh, uh, 
you know, there was initially there was a little bit of publicity about this report, and then it kind of uh, disappeared. Apparently, the lady or the teenager at the time received quite a bit of ridicule, and I guess she felt that her best strategy was to just kind of shut her mouth. Mm-hmm. But that's what I know about it, and I was really surprised that no one ever did like a sit-down videotaped interview with her uh, at any time that I know of uh, that you could see. But apparently back then they didn't have the equipment or their investigative leagues were not in place to do anything like that. Mm -hmm. Now, I had her uh, son on my Facebook group site for for quite a while. And I, I believe me, I asked him, to uh, put me in touch with this mother. Her name was Christine Van Acker. That's her. The pretty 16-year-old girl driving the car on that dark um, um, country road in Monroe, Michigan, August 1965. I lived, personally, I, myself, as a boy, young boy, lived just a few short, just probably a mile away from where this, where this took place. So it really touched a, uh, a special place in my heart. So Being, let me, let me ask you, uh, did you know about it at the time? Uh, I heard about it like everybody else did, but remember 1965, we were talking about, uh, they're in the news. They were talking about the Beatles. They were talking, they were talking about the Vietnam war. Um, so Bigfoots and that kind of stuff in my life, it meant nothing to me. It was a monster. I didn't know anything about monsters until, until, you know, as an adult, uh, when I retired, I decided to look at this stuff. And then I did go back and look at this, this, um, 1965 Monroe monster, uh, event in, in, uh, Monroe, Michigan. But you understand, Daniel and Grizz, I come at this with a different perspective. I come at it not as a child, not as a boy, but as a man, a man, uh, a retired police officer. Having been there, done that, seen these things, read the garbage. And and what I seen, in my opinion, was was a travesty. This woman and her mother were were scathed they were they were flogged in the, in the media and and that ridicule and mockery is something i just absolutely find abhorrent and detestable you never ever want to treat somebody like that i don't care if they're right or wrong but you don't you don't treat people like that and the idea we're talking about the 1965 monroe monster in monroe michigan think about this just uh, when when you when you get into the heart of this and the heart and the meat of this the situation, consider this. During that time, Monroe, the sleepy little town of Monroe, has never had any kind of attention on their on their lives like this until this happened. All of a sudden, you've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of people coming from all points of of Michigan, Ohio, to this sleepy little town remote uh, area of Frenchtown Township to see it, to look for a monster. The the county sheriff didn't know how to deal with this. The people didn't know how to deal with this. 
the the movers, the shakers, the people that made the decisions in, in that town had to do something. They weren't going to admit that there was something loose out there scaring people. So uh, it was just a coincidence, and I don't believe in coincidences, my friend. Just a coincidence. Just so happened that that some campground had lost a uh, an effigy, a caveman monster effigy from a, a nearby camping ground that looked like a caveman. And that was in the news and at the same time. And I seen this as a as a man of the world, as as a man with a little bit of experience in garbage and disinformation. I seen this as a false flag distraction. Take everybody's eyes off the Monroe monster, the Sasquatch talk, and put it on this theft of this uh, effigy, this caveman. So what they have is, is they, they send the sheriffs out to pick up this stolen property that was just so happens to, to end up on somebody's property. And uh, the effigy is taken uh, by police car, by sheriff's car, through the town so and prayed it through the town so everybody can see it. And then when they get to the sheriff's department, it just so happens the news media is there, ready and waiting with cameras to take pictures of this. So they got to take pictures of this, of this monster, and it's all laughs and giggles at this point. At some point, this effigy, this monster, escapes custody. Remember, this is stolen property. It sieves stolen property. It escapes custody. Nobody knows how. And it ends up at the same place where this uh, Sasquatch came out of the field, allegedly, and uh, attacked this woman, this young girl, 16-year-old. So the joke was, you know, this is all a hoax. This is all a joke. This is all a farce. So the state went so far as saying, okay, if, if this is true, come in here and take a, a lie detector test. In 1965, the lie detector test was was a instrument that was uh, administered, and it came out of 1910 or 1911 technology. There was a, a popular radio disc jockey from Ohio that says, you know what, we'll, we'll pay for the money for you people, you Van Arkers, to, to take this lie detector test too. It so happens that the person that administered that test was a um, was a credible uh, it was a credited uh, administer of these lie detector tests himself, and he was also uh, he also went through the same training as a state police tr uh, trooper at the time that administered that test. The test that was administered by the state police trooper showed deception with the with the Van Acker people. The same test by the by the individual who was trained in the same place as the trooper with a college background uh, showed that yes there was something there. These these people seen something. So they didn't they didn't find deception. They didn't come up with the same result as the state of Michigan. So this whole thing this whole thing wraps around uh, he said, she said, and who do you believe? But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. 
when when a young girl back in that time, 1965, uh, your driver's training amounted to mom and dad taking you out on some country, dark country road, uh, and that's how you learn how to drive. You didn't you didn't take it through school. You took it with from personal experience from mom and dad, and that was perfectly accepted. And and I mean, law enforcement all across the state they turned their face the other way when when you know, when the adults were in the car, a vehicle with a young adult learning to drive for the first time. So this was perfectly accept acceptable. What I seen, and I talked to Lauren Coleman about this because he approached me about the type of vehicle. He wanted to identify the model and the make of the vehicle that this Christine was driving. And it took a while to do this. But uh, remember 1965, very, very few people had color televisions. They didn't have tele they didn't have vehicles with power steering, power windows. It was summer. It was very, very hot. There was a storm impending, uh, hot and humid. So the young girl is learning to drive for the first time. She's driving along with her mother on this dark country road, and, and there was no street lights there. It's just dark road. There's fields on both sides she sees a beast come out of the field the windows are down because that's the natural uh, air conditioning for these kind of cars and she's shocked and what does a young girl an inexperienced driver do when they're scared they put their foot on the brake they stall the car and there it is and uh, between the mother and the daughter as i see it as i as i've read it many many times over again she screams it screams. It comes to the window, it screams, it grabs a young girl, slams her face against the doorpost, and that's the bruise on her face that she has that, that made the picture. So Yeah, even, even today, so many years or so many decades after the fact, I consider the uh, sighting by Christine Van Aker and her mother mm -hmm. as one of the best Michigan reports ever of all mm -hmm. time from that state. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, the fact that the fact that uh, this so-called uh, effigy, this this caveman, that was stolen and then and then turned up on somebody's property as as found property, it's you know Daniel Grizz. There's too many things in this in this story that uh, that don't make sense, and it and it surely looks to me as an obvious attempt to to. Uh, change the subject, look here, don't look there kind of stuff. And I don't buy it. I don't buy into that. I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, it was a hoax, it was fake. No, I'm sorry. I don't buy into that stuff. Um, you know, in, in 1965, anywhere USA, 1965, I'm talking about just after the civil rights period, and you know what I'm talking about. In 1965, anywhere USA, uh, the sheriff, who who then, like now, is a very very powerful individual. They have a lot of authority. They have a lot of say so in the state, in their county. They know everything that's going on. And back in '65, I'll tell you this: from my previous knowledge, uh, the sheriff knew who died, who who divorced who was cheating on who, who got arrested, and who was in jail. They knew everything that was going on in their state. They better, 
because they got elected each year uh, for, for, you know, for their knowledge and stuff. And I know I read I read one report that said that it claimed the sheriff claimed, well, he didn't know anything about monster reports, but he knew of a bear report in the southern part of the county. As a data miner, and, and again, remember, I'm looking at this from the perspective of attaining this 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 knowledge and this information from study, research, and analyzing these reports. According to the sheriff in 1965, he didn't know anything about monsters, but he heard of a report of a bear in the southern part of the county. You know, bears for a long time haven't been seen in, in southern Michigan for decades. But uh, from my previous knowledge now, uh, bear is the is the uh, is the code word for Sasquatch. Law enforcement across the country and, and Canada will go to extremes to avoid the word of Sasquatch Bigfoot. Instead, they'll use the word of big, they'll use the word bear to describe this, this individual, this creature. That's my experience with this. That is correct. And ladies and gentlemen, stand by. We'll be right back.
ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. <clears throat> it's another edition of Rolling the Bones Around the Cage. We got Grizz and Val. We got Daniel. Stanley Stones, this edition is brought to you by Western Kentucky Bigfoot and Paranormal Investigations, LLC. Thank you, Mr. Wyden, Mr. Don Wyden. Yeah, so very interesting you know, conversation <laughs> we're having here. We got a special guest here. So, Val, what do you think about all this? Well, Grizz, you know, the tacit unofficial term for big fat, uh, Bigfoot is bears. It's always been that word. It's always been that way. If you research into the earliest wild man reports that the, the word, the term bear is always used, even, even in more modern reports, uh, some of these reports you'll see uh, somebody reporting they they thought they seen a bear until it stood up on two legs and ran like a man. And today, now even even uh, authorities will use that word tacitly, and by yeah, tacitly right. I mean it's deception, it's deceit. But it's you know it is what it is. But um, well, they got to call it something. They got to call it something without saying that word specifically. Right, right. Yeah, it's always something. So do we have Daniel here? Yeah, I'm Daniel's still back. I'm yeah. still here waiting to be questioned. <clears throat> yeah, so Daniel, what what is your opinion on the 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 uh why do you think the word bear is used in the place of Bigfoot Sasquatch? Why do I think it's uh, it just people trying to explain something that is mysterious for something that we know more about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but that, that really doesn't enter the conversation with me too much. Mm -hmm. Now, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> uh, a lot of times conversation and bigfootery uh, turns towards infrasound. Uh, now I've I've scoured a lot of your your uh, newsletters, and a lot of times in the Bigfoot community, uh, the word infrasound is considered woo. Can you explain to the listening audience what woo is and and what your position on that is? Well, I guess woo is uh, in the Bigfoot community a way to explain uh, all these quote unquote supernatural things that are allegedly happening with bigfoot themselves like when they say these things are disappearing uh or whatever or being lifted by a ufo or whatever the case is uh i don't really get into the woo bigfoot at all i just am interested in the real biological species that's in north america for those people who are into the woo Bigfoot, that is not my department. So mm -hmm. I, I just kind of steer clear of that whole avenue. Mm -hmm. And then with regard to infrasound, which let's just call it sounds, there's a gentleman in Washington state by the name of David Ellis, who just gave uh, a talk at a Washington state Bigfoot meet and he's also writing the first book on Bigfoot sounds. So he knows much more about that topic than I do. 
and he got in touch with me late last year about this book and kind of wanted to uh, quiz me or ask questions about how I should go about it, how he should go about it. And I told him, do this, this, and this. And I said, make sure that scholarship is first and foremost in this book because there's probably a lot of people that know a lot about sounds, but not a whole lot about Bigfoot who might be interested in reading David Ellis's book. And I suspect it'll probably come out in 2024. Mm. Now, is he a school trained uh, linguist? I believe, I believe he is. I, mm -hmm. I'm not certain about his background, but I'm pretty certain that he has a degree of some sort. And he's, uh, done a lot with sounds i heard him one time at uh in 2017 at a washington state meet i want to say it was in i forget the name of the town i want to say spokane but i don't think that was the town but it was a pretty good size meet uh and he gave a very uh detailed and robust discussion about sasquatch sounds and he was comparing them uh, with other sounds from, a, I guess, a sound library. And it was just an absolutely fascinating talk. And I wrote about it in the Bigfoot Times newsletter. And like I said, late last year, out of the blue, he got in touch with me and he says, I'm writing this book. Can you help me? And I said, sure. So he requested a whole bunch of back issues of the newsletters because the newsletter is indexed the 25 years there's an index that you can go to and it'll have a discussion about sounds and so he got all those back issues so he could research his book so his book is in progress mm -hmm. now do you believe that they have a language of their own i i wouldn't be surprised if they had a rudimentary language of some sort uh with the ability to communicate to their offspring or to their mates or whatever yes, no, or go, or stop. Uh, so I, I often wonder, like, if a Bigfoot in uh, the Western United States, say California and Washington, has a certain guttural sound for yes, how would a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot on the East Coast know that that guttural sound for yes is the same? You see, it's not like they have like a dictionary or the World Wide Web like we do, mm. where language is communicated vastly because we're Homo sapiens, we're numerous in number, millions and millions of people. With a Sasquatch, it's not that case. So a yes for a Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest might not be the same uh, for a Sasquatch in the East Coast because how are they communi- they're not looking at Webster's Dictionary to find out like, oh, yes means this in the Pacific Northwest, but in Florida, it means something different. They don't know that. So I don't know exactly what's going on with their communication, but for a species to be successful, like a primate, you would suspect that they would have to have some sort of rudimentary language to uh, communicate with their own species. Yeah, very good. I've 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 talked to um, a gentleman out of Australia, and uh, he's quite informed with Yowie's there, uh, their um, Bigfoot Sasquatch Yowie, and he he sent me some interesting uh, information and in communication, and that is. Um, 
when they communicate, when they approach a, a campsite occupied by people, human people, they'll stake they'll stake a uh, a rod, a stick in the ground, indicating how many people, how many individuals, Sasquatch Yowies, are there. And they want to know how many people, human people, are in your campsite. The campers, in turn, reciprocate and put six sticks in the ground, indicating there's six people in this group here with us. And that seems to, that seems to satisfy uh, the curiosity of, of Yowie. Have you ever heard of something like that before, Daniel? Well, uh, I just received... I just received a review copy of Paul Cropper and Tony Healy's latest book. And in that book, they have that discussion about sticks in the ground. Uh, frankly, this is really the first time I've heard about this behavior coming from Yowie's. I don't think I've ever heard about this behavior about the North American Bigfoot. Mind you, I was in Australia in 2000. And I met up with some of these people. I met with Paul Cropper and Tony Healy, and we went to an area in the Brindabella Mountains where an individual, Steve Stephen Piper, had just bought a new video camera for whatever a band or something he was in. And I think he was 37 at the time or a little older than that. And he was going to do get some natural sounds from the woods for another project. And it was on this trip in the Brindabella Mountains, which is close to Sydney, sort of, uh, that he not only saw one of these things, but he got some footage of it. I know that Paul Cropper and Tony Healy aren't too keen about it, but we did go out on site to where the sighting happened and where he got the footage. And I think it's the first footage videotape of a Yowie that we know of. And that came in 2000. I just happened to be there coincidentally for the Summer Olympic Games. That was my reason to go down to Australia. And so when this happened, I think Paul Cropper reached out to me via email. And I said, geez, when I get down there, how about we go see if we could go see the site where this happened and see if we could get the witness there and tell us all about it. And we did this. And uh, I was very impressed by the witness. I spent a day with him and he did not seem like someone who was just uh, creating a hoax. I think his video now is posted to YouTube. And I guess you could just Google or go on YouTube and put in Stephen Piper and possibly see his video. It's short, about 27 seconds long, but I found it very fascinating. And it looks like a upright, hairy something out in the bush that seems to be compensating on one leg as though there's something wrong with the leg because it seems like it's dragging the leg, one of the legs. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did when I was in Australia. And so uh, there's no question in my mind that the Yowie is out there in Australia. And my first and only time there, I was able to uh, interview some witnesses. And uh, I was very impressed by all that I heard. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting that you would hear 
this, the same thing. And, and I, quite frankly, when I first heard this, I was amazed at the, uh, the communication. <clears throat> you know, when we speak about languages and stuff, uh, I've had reports, I've seen reports of people alleging they heard Chinese language, they've heard Spanish language, they've heard Native American tongue um, uh, from Sasquatches, not only English, but Native American language. And people have conversed back and forth with, with these individuals. The idea that they would use sticks as symbols to communicate doesn't surprise me one bit, but it was particularly interesting to find out that somebody from Australia um, would be very keen on this, on this idea. Now, I might add that in American military culture, uh, there are things called guidons, guidons, G-U-I-D, D-O-Ns, and they're like poles, and they carry ribbons, particularly ribbons of, of campaigns that military units have been involved in. Those are very, very important to military units. And, and when you see these old movies of uh, soldiers slamming that, that spear-type rod into the ground, that's a statement to, to think to think that uh, Sasquatch Bigfoot would use poles and sticks to communicate with people like this. It really, I mean, think about this. That's pretty interesting. It's very, very interesting. The communication, the thought that goes into this, this, these actions and stuff. It's, it's quite, it's quite amazing. So, uh, Daniel on another on another note, uh, are you familiar with are you familiar with uh, um, Sasquatches uh, posting things in trees like like Christmas ornaments and trophies? Yeah, like sure. I'm I'm a, I'm aware of this quote unquote gifting activity. Uh, I don't have a really big opinion about it uh, because on. On one level, it means everything. On another level, it means nothing because it's not the Sasquatch itself. I think mm -hmm. what's more impressive is the footprint indication mm -hmm. uh, from the creature itself. <clears throat> I mean, if you see like uh, wild apples or whatever the case may be lodged in a, in a tree or whatever, who knows, maybe a person did that. So mm -hmm. I'm saying is that this gifting or uh, rocks stacked up I mean, who knows? Maybe a person did that. So I'm not saying that a Sasquatch couldn't do it, but it's just like when you see that type of activity, it leaves itself wide open to various interpretations. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, let me ask you this, Daniel. Have you ever seen the work that I've done? Some of the posts, the threads that I've posted? No. I, no. I've, I've only seen information that you have given me via email about mm -hmm. Christine Van, Van Aker. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was very thorough and detailed. Mm -hmm. A lot of information that I never knew before. But mm -hmm. other than that, no. I wrote a uh, I wrote a thread, a post, I guess you might consider it a blog on Facebook about specifically about trophies and um, ornaments. 
And uh, what I what I detail in there is is that there's a lot of things that Sasquatch Bigfoot um, put in trees, and and this is this is confirmed by uh, a well-known hunter in Canada outside of Canada, who also mirrors the same the same thoughts that a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff goes into trees, such as uh, bales of straw, people's tents, bicycles, tires, people's clothes, uh, animals, deer, bear, cougar, wolves, fox, dogs. Um, this is a statement. We're talking. We were talking earlier about linguistics and language and communication. And uh, from again, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but but from a law enforcement perspective, um, a lot of these things mirror um, mirror uh, human beings. Human beings do that. Some types of human beings do that, and some of them aren't very good. Some of the human beings aren't very good. They're bad people. Um, serial killers do this kind of stuff and these are called signatures and i'm only interested i'm not i don't care about i don't care about bears i don't care about striped elephants or cougars or people with cherry pickers you know the machines that lift people up and lift objects up and place them someplace uh, we're talking about remote areas where these items are found um these are to me these are statements these are these are items to be seen um, there's some thought that some of these things such as uh, deer elk and uh, moose and cows and stuff uh, are there for the travelers it's it's for other sasquatch bigfoot to come along this is a, this is telling them this is a safe place this is a place where you can eat you you got food and you can go on with your business go on with your life um what is your thought on that have you ever heard of that oh yeah it's i i don't know what to make of it uh, it's it's like uh i can't say it's a gray area in my research but i i don't pay a whole lot of attention to it in the fact that is it something that a person could have done and if it is, I'm saying, well, maybe it was a Sasquatch, maybe it wasn't. But if there was a tree, say, with three or four rocks lodged in it, mm -hmm. and there was a clear trackway going right up to it, a very good trackway of a Bigfoot, then I would say, absolutely, that was a Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. But if there's just boot prints going up to it, I'm saying, well, maybe this was just a guy hiking that just happened to put a couple of rocks in a tree. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Robert Lindsay? He was a terrific uh, Bigfoot blogger for a lot of years on, on the internet. I think so. If I'm not mistaken, he's passed away. Uh, he might be. I know he wasn't. I think, in I, I think real I've heard the name before. Yeah, he wasn't in real good health a couple of years ago. But very, very. I'm going to tell you something. He was very influential in my in my earlier uh review of bigfoot uh sasquatch and uh as a matter of fact i i can honestly say that as a young boy growing up i never never aspired to be a bigfoot sasquatch 
researcher, data miner. Never, never entered my mind. The type of work that I did brought me in uh, close uh, quarters to um, David Pallades, and I contacted him while I was still uh, on the job doing what I did over questions that I that that I had uh, regarding some of the stuff that I found. And um, my specialty uh, on the job was organized crime. It had nothing to do with Bigfoots, you understand. But um, that being said, um, uh, I started looking at these Robert Lindsay um, uh, blogs and stuff. And some of the stuff in there was just incredible. And, and I know for a short time he had been lurking on my group site. Um, but I know that he was in, not in real good health at that at that point. But one of the things one of the things that that he had on there that still sticks with me is a hunter, a professional hunter out of out of Canada. And I can't tell you what province it was in Canada, but I guess it was Alberta. I'm looking right now. It's, it was Alberta. And one of the things that the hunter told him was that he needed to get in touch with Robert because Robert, he was reading Robert's blogs and he felt that he, he needed to, to uh, tighten up some of the unquestioned or unanswered questions that he had about Bigfoots in that blog. He mentioned himself that uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch um, do go out, you know, a lot of, in spite of what a lot of people say about Bigfoot Sasquatch only uh, being out there in the remotest isolated uh, points and places of the earth, that's not true. They thrive and they live right there, right here in the inner cities, on the fringes of inner cities and in highly populated places. And they feed off of uh, our dumps, our regional, regional dumps. So they're very well fed. They're cared for. They find security on the fringes. They're very curious about people, about us. And they also put stuff in trees. They also put stuff in trees. Just as I, just as I explained in this uh, thread that I posted, ornaments and trophies for various reasons. They do this for various reasons. But um, my question to you is, is um, you're out there in California. California gets the most attention, the most uh, uh, media for obvious reasons. Are they dangerous in your I opinion? Don't, I don't think they are. No, I think most of the reports, if you look at all the reports, you have an encounter with the Sasquatch and the vast majority of them indicate that this thing turns and walks or runs away. So I can't see how there's anything dangerous about it. But there are reports there. There's a percentage of the reports that do indicate that there was some violence involved. And I would say that uh, perhaps the person initiated something that was a violent behavior to the Bigfoot that it in turn responded because you have to remember it's a wild animal. 
I mean, I was just reading the other day about a camper who uh, was out having coffee in the morning and normally black bears aren't too dangerous, but apparently this black bear came into camp and uh, killed him. And that mm. was just in the national news just a couple of days ago. So that is uh, correct. Yeah. So oftentimes we don't we don't pay too much attention to black bears. We just you know keep your distance. But oftentimes they can be. Uh, there could be a fatal encounter even with a black bear, and uh, you got to remember it's a wild animal. Mm. Now, one of the questions, Daniel, uh, somebody in the audience is, what do you think about these trees that are upside down put in the ground? I think that got some traction many years ago in uh, a book that was written about Alaskan Bigfoot. And I think it was on TV. <laughs> and they were saying that there's no possible way that these big uprooted trees that are turned upside down and jammed back into the ground could have been the work of anything but a Bigfoot. But apparently, I guess some investigation there by some people indicated that I guess people that were doing uh, trees, tree falling up in the area, they intentionally turned some of these trees upside down and with their backhoes pushed the root system into the ground and so it would give the appearance that this is absolutely supernatural, the work of a Bigfoot, but probably not. Okay. That's, that's, that's my that opinion. Question, so. That's my opinion. And if you want to continue to believe otherwise, I have no problem with that. It's the same like it's the same like if people want to believe that the earth is flat, I'm not going to argue with you. Mm -hmm. Well, you got no arguments with me about about the flat earth uh, theory, that's for sure. Um, the issue I have with with uh, experts is is that especially on social media is that Daniel, Grizz, everybody wants to be Cluso. Everyone wants to be a Lieutenant Colombo and solve these mysteries. Everybody wants to be an expert. Everybody wants to be the one to pronounce something as a hoax, a fake, and a fraud. When you ask these people who, who pronounced uh, this to be a fraud, or a hoax, the names of the experts are always unnamed or unknown. And, and what I'm saying is, is when, when we look at these things, and, and a lot of these things, whether it's pictures, footprints, tracks, uh, you have to use a lot of discernment. You have to use your own logic and your own reasoning. But when somebody comes out and pushes the idea that uh, that um, some of these things are, are fake and fraud and stuff, why is it that nobody knows the name of these experts? And why can nobody share the, the methodology? Um, I want to know what, were, what was the thesis? What was the, the peer paper, you know, that was written about this? Show me, convince me that this is a fake and a, and a hoax and a fraud before you go out there and run to the keyboard and put this on there. 
Well, that's some of the issues that I have. I, I will add something that I heard from a fellow investigator, Peter Gatella, who was pretty well known in the Bigfoot community back in the 70s. Actually, to those people who really follow the topic, he's actually still well known. But he said something to the effect that there are no uh, experts in the Bigfoot field, just people with opinions. Mm -hmm. And even today, I adhere to that statement because it's very true. Because mm -hmm. as I tell people, we're not studying Sasquatches or Bigfoot. We're studying reports of them. Mm -hmm. so that, that's a very key difference is that we're not actually studying Bigfoot. We're studying reports about them. Mm -hmm. Anyone who tells you that they have Sasquatch in their crosshairs 24 hours a day is, is either a fool or a liar. Mm -hmm. Well, that's some strong words, Daniel. <laughs> Very strong. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. Um, so uh, I know that in the past I've been called a fraud. Uh, before anybody knows who I am, some of the things that I've said, I can only say that I can only say that in my lifetime, I have seen absolutely seen one Bigfoot Sasquatch in Michigan in 2014, almost almost two years to the day when I retired. Um, I've seen some pretty bad things in my life in my in my adult life experience. But to wrap my head around and reason with the, the thought of an eight and a half or nine foot hairy man uh, in a tree um, is, is, was pretty difficult for me. But when, but when I took a picture of this and it's on my group site, uh, I, somehow that picture ended up in the UK and it came back to me with, with, uh, at least four circles on the ground. And the note, the message was, Hey Val, there was four others crouched down and crawled, you know, laying down in the grass all around you. All I can say is that I took one bite of the apple. And if I ever see, if I ever see another one again, it's too soon. Um, I do know, I do know that uh, as a chess player, as a as a student of strategy and tactics and stuff, uh, I I have a deep respect for those for whatever they are for those individuals that they didn't they didn't show any sign of aggression towards me, and I and I'm very very grateful for that. Although. Um, it, it was it was difficult thinking about this. It was difficult reasoning with this uh, because all these years, all through my adult life, this has always been a myth. When you're standing in line at a grocery store looking at these fish wrap newspapers about uh, somebody getting pregnant by a Bigfoot and stuff like that, uh, it's a myth, it's a joke. But when you see it in real life, eye to eye, mano to mano, um, it's real. It's very real. And when they blink their eyes at you, um, you know, it's real. And it, I really had a difficult time with it, uh, reasoning with that. 
I knew for a fact that they're that they're alive, and it kind of it kind it, it sort of hardened my um, resolve because all these years we've been lied to and deceived that this is a fake and a myth and stuff like that, and um, to see it in real life as a live living being, I don't know what it is. You know, when people ask me my opinion of what a Sasquatch Bigfoot is, I don't know. Uh, I always say it's 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 in between a primate and a human being. It's an enigma. You know, it's it's a mystery. And what do you think, Daniel? About about what? What is a Sasquatch? What is a Bigfoot? Oh, everyone has different ideas. Uh, I just like to use the broad category that uh, it's a primate. Mm -hmm. And and people say, well, it's it falls into the ape category, and other people say it falls into the people category. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is we do not know. There's mm -hmm. not one investigator or researcher on the planet who has a definite answer to that. Mm -hmm. And when John Green was living and he did his studies, he did a lot of statistical studies in his book, Sasquatch, the Apes Among Us, in 1978. He found that based on the reports of eyewitnesses that almost, I guess, half of them des described what they saw as an ape-like entity, and the other half said it was very man-like. And so, you know, there's, there's the coin toss right there. And I said, well, forget about that because we don't know. We don't have a Sasquatch. No one has collected a Sasquatch yet. I said, why don't you just call it a primate at the present time and just go with that? And I'm, I'm happy with that answer. You see, I, I sort of, I sort of, I agree with you, but I disagree that none of us has, has had a bis, uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch body. I believe that they have been taken. I believe that uh, some circles have had a uh, body. Um, whether or not you agree with that, that's, you know, that's well, I, your I, don't, I don't agree or disagree on that mm -hmm. assertion. It's just that mm -hmm. no one has proof that they actually had a body or mm -hmm. a government agency. No one mm -hmm. can prove it. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the whole thing about that is that mm -hmm. uh, no one has proof that they have a body in their custody. Mm -hmm. And in, in terms of uh, someone killing one. The only report that I know of in North America happened in Canada in 1941. The, the individual is now deceased, and he was a, a guy by the name, an immigrant to Canada by the name of Paul Shibaga. And he was out hunting, I guess this was in Manitoba, and he was out hunting with his uh, a group. And I think they were trying to get a moose because I guess they were dirt poor and uh, they were hunting without tags and he was by himself. And I guess he, he thought he saw a, a, a moose in the bush and he, I think he was 17 years old and he took a shot and then this thing took off and it was still in the bush, but he saw the blood trail and then I guess he, he had another opportunity to see it in the bush again, and he shot it again. And apparently this was a kill shot. And then he later saw the animal that he killed. He thought it was going to be a moose. And uh, I think his words, his exact words was, holy buckets. 
and that he was looking down at something that he had killed accidentally because he thought it was a moose. He thought it was going to be their dinner. Uh, And it turned out to be this gigantic, hairy, ape-like creature. And uh, a fellow did an interview with him and got to know him quite well. Can't think of his name right now, but he wrote a book about cryptids in general in Canada. Mm-hmm. And Paul Shibaga is featured in it. And uh, he actually did a videotape recording of Paul Shibaga. And I've seen that videotape. And I was highly impressed. And I said, it's just as I thought that this individual, Paul Shibaga, who's now deceased, was a highly credible witness. And so in 1941, the mystery could have potentially been solved had he, had he come forward with what had transpired, but instead he kept the whole thing a big secret. You know, as a student of uh, Bigfootery, looking at, looking and reading, analyzing all these reports and stuff, uh, there are there are lots and lots of reports <clears throat> of um, Bigfoot inter uh, interaction with with people and um, a lot of uh, situations where where Bigfoot is uh, they meet reprisal for some of their some of their um, indiscretions um, a lot of reports that uh, not a lot but there's there's quite a few reports of of a Bigfoot allegedly being killed. Um, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> in my early experience, I I, uh, I think I posted a uh, thread, blog thread on um, um, Bigfoots in captivity, and I noted that um, you know there's a number. You know, people say. We've never, we never captured a Bigfoot. We never captured a Bigfoot. That's not true. All across the country, uh, there's, there's uh, a history. There's, there's a long list of incidents where uh, Bigfoot had been captured. In fact, uh, during the turn of the century, uh, there's, there's a number of events where uh, Bigfoot was taken into custody and, and placed in jail. They didn't know what these were. They didn't know what kind of people these were. They put them in jail in, in some of these small towns all across the country, including Canada. And um, they ended up letting them loose because they either died because they, the Sasquatch refused to eat what, what people eat or they just released them because they, they couldn't do anything with them. And it scared the other prisoners. Well, uh, there, there is one report from 1884 from Yale, British Columbia. It's the very famous story of Jacko. Mm-hmm. And he was allegedly taken into captivity. Uh, and various people, uh, John Green, uh, Rene DeHinden, Tom Steenberg, uh, Barry Blount, and Chris Murphy investigated that report, a historical report. And uh, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. And uh, the bottom line is at the end of the story, there's no body 
to show for and that it was allegedly shipped off to the United Kingdom or to England and from there the story grows goes dry mm -hmm. so it's a head scratcher mm -hmm. uh, it may have happened but uh, again we have no concrete proof that this was in fact the case John Green in one of his books or I guess indicated that he thought perhaps that maybe it was a uh, a fabrication on behalf of the newspaper just to generate readership back mm -hmm. in time. But I don't know. I wasn't alive in 1884. It may mm -hmm. have happened. The, all, all the witnesses who saw it uh, are all deceased now. So it's just mm -hmm. like it's, you can't interview anyone today that actually saw the young Jacko. Mm -hmm. But he does, he does fit the description of what you would call or consider a juvenile Bigfoot. Exactly. And and interesting about that report, if I recall, and I, I recall reading that report, <clears throat> that was in Canada, as I recall. Yeah, Yale, uh, Columbia. Yes, and it was being shipped by rail car. Um, and somehow, as the story goes, it escaped. In Michigan, in, by contrast, in Michigan, a very, very similar event allegedly occurred on the western part of the state where um, where a bean, a hairy bean, was being shipped by crate. And just so happened that there was a train derailment and the beast escaped. And a very, uh, it, it, it is claimed that the the the, the uh, following couple of years, there had been reports of uh, this and that occurring. Um, things very not very nice to people occurring. Um, so I'm thinking that, uh, you know, when we, we talk about uh, people not having, uh, having one of these in custody or, or not having a body and stuff, this has been going on for some time, I think, in my opinion, based on what I see. Um, let me ask you, while we're, we're on this topic subject, what do you think about the Miller document? Have you seen the Miller document that came out a couple of years ago? No, I'm, I'm completely not familiar with the Miller document. What, what in essence, does it say in summary? Uh, in summary... Uh, the Miller document is supposedly by a, um, a scholarly individual, an anthropologist, PhD, MD, PhD. Uh, he worked, he was employed by the government, and um, his papers were left supposedly with a relative, and somehow uh, the relative or something left the papers behind. The papers ended up with a blogger. A blogger published these, interpreted these. They, they were written in Swedish, in a Swedish language. They were they were uh, translated, and in a sense, um, the uh, mysterious Doctor H something something uh, Miller <clears throat> claimed that that he had worked uh, for the government for for quite a quite a while. He named he named and identified the agencies and that uh, he was studying um, these beings, these, these uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch as we know them now, but 
uh, his term, his name was a lot different than what we recognize as Bigfoot Sasquatch. He claimed that uh, he was first uh, uh, detailed to go down to Texas. There's an early event that occurred in Texas. And this is, um, if I'm not mistaken, this is uh, mentioned with uh, Lauren Coleman in one of his earlier books, an, an incident that occurred in Texas. Uh, according to the documents, um, two, two soldiers in California were, were overheard talking about this incident in Texas that Lauren, Corm that Lauren Coleman referenced in his earlier book. And this Dr. Miller was sent down there to, to investigate this. And he identified Bigfoot Sasquatches. So he was familiar with them and he gave them a name, a regional name that has, you know, it's not even close to what we recognize as Bigfoot Sasquatch. In addition to that, he was sent to Washington on a report of a um, Sasquatch that was killed when a uh, large storm came along and knocked a tree down and subsequently killed a uh, Sasquatch. So he went there to investigate this and he says, yep, this is the same this is about the same species that we were looking at down in Texas. Well, we're going to give this a different name, a Pacific uh, Celebidity or something uh, name. But we're going to call this uh, the Pacific Northwest. But it, he describes it as the same being individual as the one in Texas. The one in Texas had the... Uh, had the name Nortenio or something. And what he's saying when he closes out this, this, this document, he says that it's imperative that uh, people, people with influence could make vast areas open for these individuals. In other words, more national forest, more more state preserves, more wildlife uh, controlled areas, because these individuals have an enormous need for resources. Without the resources, he says, according to him and his document, that uh, it places them in closer um, uh, realm to human beings. And uh, when they're close to human beings, the and when when they're shy of resources, uh, he alludes to them um, preying on people. And he says he closes us out with this this advice. He says, Bigfoot Sasquatch will never exist with human being people. Never, because of their enormous need for resources, meaning food. And I say this because there's reports that uh, the numbers of deer and elk, the natural resources, are falling. I don't know why. Nobody knows why. But the numbers of the population of deer and, and elk are declining. And we've heard reports of um, Bigfoot Sasquatches preying on bears because they like bear meat. Bears 
prey on on small juvenile sasquatches and um, uh, Bigfoot sasquatch as they are they're very territorial and very protective of their own small kind and they've taken a liking to 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 bear meat so uh, with that uh, does that sound like something that's that's um, fundamentally uh, sound with you it sounds okay I mean I'm not really too familiar with this Texas report that you said that is in Lauren Coleman's book. I have all of his books and I don't ever recall reading it or reading about it. It, mm -hmm. it may be there, but uh, I'm not familiar with it. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Grizz, you have anything? No, you're <laughs> actually answering all my questions. I'm actually <laughs> answering the questions in the audience. As we are uh, continuing the, the show, because uh, uh, you're all hitting all the key points and everything. And he's actually answering questions uh, as they are asking. So I don't have to ask anything besides that tree. So, yeah, they're enjoying it. And uh, they're talking amongst themselves and checking on each other and enjoying the show. So, you yes, know, ladies and gentlemen, we're 13 short. Come on, we can do it. 13. Well, one so, Go ahead, Daniel. One area that we haven't discussed yet is the very famous Patterson-Gimlin film from October of 1967. Mm -hmm. So if you want to ask questions about that, I have a certain degree of expertise on that film. And I've authored a booklet called Bigfoot at Bluff Creek. And I'm currently updating that bookfoot, that book, Bigfoot at Bluff Creek, into a more substantial uh, offering for next year. Now, uh, M.K. Davis has been on the show before, and, and quite frankly, to be honest, in all transparency, he's a friend of mine. And he's and to me, he's done a wonderful job in, in, in breaking down the, the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film, the patty that we see. Why is it, Daniel, why is it that there's so many skeptics that, uh, that uh, have an issue with that with that? Uh, well, I think I think possibly there are many skeptics and doubters about that very famous piece of film strip is because it goes against their own beliefs and therefore that uh, it's a gut reaction, whether it's real or not is not the point. It's it goes against their beliefs and so they shoot it down. So mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not asking anyone to believe in the Patterson Gimlin film, but it is a piece of uh, uh, evidence. Mm -hmm. So you're not you're not in that uh, skeptic crowd that says, no, that's not you know that was a hoax, that was a fraud, that was uh, this or that. No, I'm of the opinion, having studied the film and the circumstances surrounding it, probably more than anyone else up to this point in 2023, that what you see in that film is a real biological Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. more than likely a female as as well so are you and I, I wanted to mention mk davis uh mk mm -hmm. davis was the bigfooter of the year in i think december of 2007 in the pages of the bigfoot times newsletter because he did something that no one else had done up to that time is that he used a technique that he told me was secondary imagery tagging 
in which he was able to look at certain frames of the Patterson-Gimlin film and see that in a couple of frames before, in a couple of frames before, uh, when you see the subject, that there are portions of the, the, the sandbar that you could see where the subject had made footprints. And so prior to M.K. Davis coming along, it was the opinion of Rene DeHinden, one of the chief investigators. Uh, he made the opinion that at no point do we actually see the Sasquatch Patty in the film actually making tracks. Mm -hmm. But M. M. K. Davis, by using his technique, was able to uh, visually demonstrate with the film itself that as she walks, there's a wake of tracks or indentations in the ground. Mm -hmm. And I recall I ran that piece of information by John Green at the time, and he says, yeah, it sure looks like that's the case, that where she walks or where she had been, you could see it in certain film frames that there's indentations in the ground. So what's happening is that when she's walking, the tracks are happening simultaneously. So anyone who says that uh, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film was faked and that she walked at one time and then they put down the tracks at the second time is clearly mistaken because there's evidence to the contrary that when she walked, her tracks are being made at simultaneously and you could see it on the film mm -hmm. and that was mk davis's work mm -hmm. yeah he's a he's an amazing individual I love the guy amazing but but you know that speaks to his computer expertise expertise in computers and stuff his training his knowledge and stuff but uh there's other reports other people that say that there's patty was Patty was the Patty that we've seen was just one individual of, of several more that were on site um, at that time. And that photo, the, the photo was taken. Well, you know, the point about that is that what you see on the film is one individual, mm -hmm. whether there was others in the woods or whatever, I don't know. But if you go back in time just a little bit, August, September of 1967 on Blue Creek Mountain, which is in Northern California as well, is that Blue Creek Mountain and the Patterson-Gimlin film site are separated by air miles, probably maybe six miles at best. And in August and September of 67, John Green and Rene DeHinden were there to investigate footprints that were found in that area. And a fellow by the name of Bud Ryerson had phoned them to let them know and they flew down immediately. And at the time uh, on Blue Creek Mountain, 15 inch tracks were discovered as well as a smaller 13 inch track. And Patty's track from the Patterson-Gimlin film site was 14 and a half. So she may have been a member of that small group where maybe possibly the male was a 15 incher, she was a 14 and a half incher and there was another one with a 13-inch foot. So that's speculation, but it seems like she was probably part of that group that was also on Blue Creek Mountain in that general vicinity because here the Blue Creek Mountain tracks happened August, September of 1967. A few months later, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin come into the general area 
and uh, get, they were hoping to get footage of the tracks. Instead, they got footage of the actual track maker. And to date, to date, it remains the single biggest piece of evidence in favor of the existence of Bigfoot. You've done your homework, Daniel. That's why I'm writing a book. <laughs> You've done your homework, my friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Interesting. You see, a lot of that stuff isn't known to the average person that comes along and, and looks at that picture, and they don't it, they don't get this this inside information. Well, you know? it's all it's all about connecting the dots, and a, mm -hmm. a lot of the new Bigfoot community only live online and social media and don't do any homework. Uh, they don't read the books. Uh, it's, you know, it's their right, but it's just like there's so much information out there that is in the books from the past, and it would, it, it would just be for that person to find those books and to read them. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Very, very interesting. And I will add that when you talk about the Patterson-Gimlin film, Okay, so uh, the film was shot on Friday. By Monday, October 23rd, a fellow by the name of Lyle Laverty was on the film site with a timber. He was a timber management individual from the United States Forest Service, and he was with a small group of four or five individuals, and they were in that uh, Del Norte County in the Six Rivers National Forest uh, determining which trees should be chopped and which trees should stay. And they found Lyle Laverty and his group found the Patterson Gimlin film site on their own. And when he took a few photos of the tracks in the ground, uh, I interviewed him two times in 1991 or 1992. And then in, uh, 25 years later in 2017, I believe, and he indicated to me that he was less than 200 pounds, about 170 pounds or something like that. And he stated that his tracks and his boots did not come anywhere near the depth of the tracks that he had seen on that film site. So that indicates that whatever was there was very heavy. And then you jump forget about him for the moment you jump to november 5th of 1967 and jim mclaren arrived on that film site with a fellow by the name of richard henry who's now deceased who took him there and another fellow from eureka a radio personality his name escapes me right now but they all went up and they also seen the tracks too and jim indicated well actually richard henry indicated to me he said, he said uh, in a videotaped interview with me, he said, I got on my hands and knees to look at these tracks very closely. And he said, uh, they did not appear that they were manufactured in any way. They appeared like it was something real that had left those tracks. And he indicated that those tracks were sinking into the sandbar uh, almost one inch deep. And that he weighed at the time, it's it's in my manuscript right now, his weight, but he was around 175 pounds or so. And he says he barely, in his what he called Western-style boots, that he barely left the scuff mark 
in the sandbar at the time one the tracks of the track maker that made the film patty was sinking almost up to one inch deep and so that that to any thinking person should tell you volumes do you think it's easier to estimate a um, sasquatch's height by its impression or estimating the weight uh maybe not so much the weight because according to bob gimlin that that sandbar was damp at the time and so when you're leaving tracks at the beach say you're at the beach on a sunny day your tracks are going to sink differently based on how much water content is in the sand mm -hmm. very dry you might not leave a very deep impression but when it gets wet uh your your prints might go down a little bit deeper mm -hmm. so uh what, what was i going to say and you can also estimate the size of the subject based on the size of the prints and this is this is something that is very well known in anthropology when you're just estimating the size of an individual male or female because foot length has a definite correlation to height of an individual and so that's that's a well-known scientific concept so if you were to do the same with a bigfoot uh that subject would be in the in the general vicinity of about seven feet tall so is that seven foot tall is that is that what the consensus is about how tall patty was well the consensus by various people when john green was there to do a recreation film he arrived with jim mclaren and some other people and that was on june 5th of 1968 got to remember at the time i think he had five children so it wasn't like he could break away from uh his family obligations at any time but he was able to get there in june of 68 and do a recreation film and it was his opinion uh using jim mclaren who was six feet five inches tall and yes jim mclaren is really that tall uh, i met him once in september of 2003 and uh he's a very tall individual and uh, they used him as the stand-in for patty and it was John Green's opinion that the subject in the movie film was about six, eight, six foot, nine inches tall. That was his estimation. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, some people, again, not myself, but some people believe that one of those individuals were, were shot and killed. I think that kind of comes from M, not MK Davis, but maybe David Polites. I guess that was the massacre theory. Mm -hmm. No, that's how can I say that? Uh, you could just step a step away from that. That's just all nonsense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the late Bobby Short, I think, put some of this on her Bigfoot Encounters website, and uh, it's just it's just plain and utter nonsense. And I would say pay no attention to that, because yeah. back then in '67, that was the whole point to go get a Bigfoot. So if, they, if, if one of them was massacred, that would, they would have had a body, but they don't have a body. And that would tell you that that massacre theory or whatever it was, was just a bunch of nonsense, nonsense from the get go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've read the works by Bobby uh, Short and she was exceptional. She was exceptional. And what she did, I've her, learned a her, lot. Her Bigfoot Encounters website is still being, is up, still up. And mm -hmm. I guess being run by relatives of her 
Yeah, that's the impression I got, Daniel. When I look at the, it doesn't look like it's it's uh, updated often, but it's still up. I've seen it, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a remarkable thing. Now, uh, again, switching gears a little bit. Uh, earlier, we were talking about BFRO. Now, I I, I just want to say that BFRO plays an important role in. Uh, uh, Bigfootery. Do I believe they're accurate? No, that's my opinion. But it's very, very important that that uh, that we have a clearinghouse somewhat uh, for Bigfoot information out there. What I do not like uh, in Michigan, in particular, you know, I've had threats and and all kinds of stuff over over the information that that I've collected and gathered. Uh, there are some unscrupulous people out there that want that information for no other reason, uh, for bragging rights or um, for profit, to take that information and turn it into money, sell it on apps and what have you and stuff. I just don't, I, I don't, uh, I don't agree with that. And um, what do you think about that? Uh, BFRO has been around a long time. Um, there is a need for that, I think. What do you think, Daniel? Monetizing the subject? Yes, sir. Well, I think everyone that has any sort of interest in the subject matter today, that is what it's all about, is how, how can I say this, and I'm trying to be nice, that I think anyone who's into Bigfoot these days is that that's their only point, is to monetize the subject. And... Uh, I don't have any problem with that. This is the United States of America, and we're all about capitalism. So they have they have that right. Even with me, I have a monthly newsletter, and of course, anyone can subscribe. But I can't give away paper for free, and I can't give away stamps for free, and I can't give away envelopes for free, and I can't give away my writing in the newsletter for free. So. There is that monetization aspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't have a trouble with it because people want to put, you know, they want to get something in return for their time and their hard work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, earlier you and I were talking about the early um, track record reports by Mr. Crow. And you, and you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, Ray Crow. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And so uh, I, th I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that he started out with um, handwritten, hand-typed uh, uh, newsletters uh, with stamp and envelopes and things of that nature, similar to what you're doing. So I see your endeavor uh, very nostalgic in that, you know, it, it brings me back to the time when, when uh, this is how... Bigfoot researchers reached out and networked with people across the country, uh, North America, Canada, what have you. And that was by paper. This is how they started. This is how they did it. What do you think about that? Well, I, to each his own. I mean, I guess I could put out a digital newsletter, but uh, that's not me. I want to put out a paper newsletter and mail, out to, mail it out to a membership. And that's what makes it unique. And mm -hmm. again, uh, the the testimony of my newsletter is the fact, the very fact that it's gone on for 25 years, 
that should tell, say something to anyone who uh, wants to think about the newsletter that it, it survived this long for a reason. Mm -hmm. And how many, you said 26 years, this has been we're, in We're in our 26th year now. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You don't we, mind. We have about a little over 860 members right now. And I'm one of them. And you're uh, one of them. I am and the, the membership varies from month to month because oftentimes people, they're there for a year and they forget mm -hmm. to resubscribe. And I don't remind them and off they go. And then a couple of years later, they're back. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I can tell you that, you know, from my previous uh, experience with the newsletter, um, you and I spoke about this before, you know, I found, you know, I found some interesting tidbits in there. Very, very good. And if I want to know who's who in a Bigfoot community, that's the place to go to. And I pick up the newsletter. I look. I don't see my name in there. What? <laughs> I don't what? see my name in there. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to the Bigfoot Times Index, I don't uh -huh. believe you've been mentioned one time yet. Yeah. Well, I, th I think you'll do something about that, won't you, Daniel? <laughs> we'll probably have to add your name there and have a discussion about you and what you're doing because yeah. I've actually never seen your Facebook group online yet, and I'm no. a member of Facebook. And uh, as we were discussing a couple of days ago, I had difficulty finding your site, to be quite mm -hmm. honest with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little, uh, you know, Daniel, I, I march to a different beat. You know, I... I I pride myself in not doing the same old, same old stuff that you see on social media. I'm, I'm me. I'm in, I'm an individual uh, with different experiences, come from different, a different way of life, different walk of life. And I look at this from a different um, set of eyes than a lot of people. And, um, you know, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes people like it. Sometimes they don't. I don't care. Um, I'm here for the, I'm here for the ride. And when it's over, uh, I'm happy with that too. You know, I'm blessed to, to do what I do and, and to be where I be, where I've been. And, um, you know, that's, that's all I can say about it. Right. You know, but, um, yeah, I, you know, really, really enjoyed, um, chit-chatting with you um you know one of the uh one of the things that i've done in the past daniel is uh when, when i did retire uh you you don't know this about me but but you know before i took that final bow and that curtain call i felt a uh, need to to reach out and do something important for mankind. And that's me. That's, you know, I, I just want to do right by mankind. I, I want to do right by people. And I felt it was necessary to, to do what I can to help other people. And, uh, I, I took it upon myself as a, um, as a private licensed, uh, investigator. That's where the word gumshoe guy comes from and police parlance, a gumshoe guy, is is the is the old uh, private investigator who was measured by the amount of gum stuck to the sole of their shoes 
and that's how that's how you got around. This is a time before computers and a lot of telephones and stuff. You got out on your feet and you walked and you chit-chatted with people. So uh, using using that that skill, uh, that experience, um, I went out and um, looked for an, a missing individual from Ohio. I live in Michigan. This individual was from Ohio, and he disappeared down south. And um, uh, I went voluntarily. I went out and, and used my time, my off-duty time, to uh, hunt down this, this individual that had, that had been missing about 31 years, thirty between 30 and 31 years. And um, in doing so, I met some wonderful people. Uh, it, it renewed my, it re renewed my, my, uh, trust in people. And, you know, I, you know, people aren't all bad. There's a lot of good in, in human beings all across this country. You just have to go out there and look, they're there, you know, from, from the standpoint of seeing a lot of bad, a lot of bad, um, there are good people out there. And there's good people out there willing to help people. Uh, the moment these, these people down there in Louisiana learned what I was doing uh, in, in a passion of, of free gratis, paying it forward, they were ready, more than what, ready and willing to, to do the same for me. And they offered uh, DNA test kits for me. They offered to test my DNA samples to look for this individual. They knew what I was doing. They knew I wasn't profiting off of this. Uh, and they, they were willing to do their role, their part, and they did so. But a long story short, in less than 21 months, I was able to locate this missing individual. And to this day, um, his case remains a cold case unsolved. He was a homicide victim. And um, <clears throat> it took me another three months to get his body back to his native Ohio home from Texas. <clears throat> and his family asked that I eulogize his, his funeral service, and I did. The day after I did this was the day that I retired. And I thought that th that was you know, that was a time for me to make my curtain call and say, this is enough. I've had enough. And that's when I stepped away. When I stepped away from this, that stuff, <clears throat> um, there was a lot of uncertain questions that I had that were unanswered. And that's what brought me in contact with David Pallades. Um, in, in, a, in a couple of phone conversations that I had with him over, over these questions. And, um, when I did that, I, I made contact with a uh, gentleman out of Michigan, Bob Daigle, who was a well-known pioneer uh, in Bigfootery in the Michigan area. And I asked him, I said, what is this, what is this stuff about Bigfoot, Sasquatch? What, what is it? And, and is, there, is there truth to this? And, and if so, uh, have there been any sightings in Michigan? That's what that's what uh, initiated the uh, the reason for me getting involved with this 12 years ago. And from that point on, Daniel, I set up 
four different databases, four. One Michigan, one uh, reference book, which is, which is really nothing more than an encyclopedia of reports with over 235 subject topics. And, and when I look at reports, when I read reports and analyze these different reports, I'm looking for flagged words. I'm the one that created these, these flag words, specific terms, words, and I look for these flag words. When I find these flag words, I note it on these reports and I put them into that category and populate these, these databases and stuff. So when, when I, in passing, tell you, you know, that I've looked at uh, over 138,000 reports, I mean exactly what I say. I've, I've looked at these, I've read these, uh, a lot of them I can't, I can't possibly recall all the dates and times of all these different reports. But when you, when you mention reports like you did tonight, um, yeah, I recall, I recall seeing the same thing that you did, but I look at it differently. I look at it differently, you know, and, um, it's, it's very interesting. And once you start getting involved with this, it grows on you like a passion. And it's, and it's sort of tough to, to break away from that. So I don't know at what point that I step away from this. I am assuming that I will at some point, but it's, 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 uh, it's an addiction, I, I would think. Do you see your work uh, in in Bigfoot times similar to that, Daniel? In a way, you know, it. I'm sure the newsletter, uh, the Bigfoot Times, you know, by the time I'm expired, that it will be my legacy. Mm -hmm. And because it has an index to it of the entire newsletter, and people will have access to it after I'm long gone, they, they will make the realization or they will make the determination whether it was good, bad, or in between. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I suspect uh, my work on the Patterson-Gimlin film and the Bigfoot Times will be my legacy in Bigfoot. So Daniel, how do you want to be looked at? <coughs> as you're, a, as you're, a serious you're... investigator. Mm -hmm. That's your legacy, and that's the way you want people to see you years from now. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I can, I can real, I can understand that. I can see that. Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, uh, I've met Wayne King, who was one of the original uh, Michigan Bigfoot investigators. Pioneer. Um, when I was in Michigan in 1996, I specifically went up to see him and I spent a good part of the day with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, he was, he had files and uh, he was just really all into it. And he's long retired now, but he's still living, but I don't think he's doing anything with Bigfoot because if I'm not mistaken, he would probably be late eighties by mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And oh. in 1980, uh, one of the first Bigfoot books or one of the early Bigfoot books was authored by a Michigan uh, native, uh, Dr. Kenneth Wiley. And it wasn't a positive spin on the Bigfoot. He was actually quite skeptical about the whole topic. But mm -hmm. again, he's from Michigan as well. 
-hmm. Now, if I if I'm not mistaken, I mean, just to go just to show you how much I read and, and research this stuff. Uh, Mr. Wiley was a uh, professor out of Michigan State University, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. I think mm -hmm. he he worked at on the university system. I'm not sure where. Mm -hmm. I forget exactly what his specialty was, but he had a PhD in something, and it's noted in his book, mm -hmm. Bigfoot. And mm -hmm. he interviewed uh, Rene De Hinden, John Green, Wayne King. Uh, Unfortunately, he did not interview Dr. Grover Krantz, and I'm not exactly certain to this day why he did not. And uh, Dr. Kenneth Wiley is still living as well. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard, you know, I've heard from, you know, from within the Bigfoot community circles that Rene, you mentioned him several times, DeHendon, and I've never met the man ever. Um, I believe he's deceased now, isn't he? Yes, he passed yeah. away in April of 2001. Yeah, um, from from what I heard, he was a he was a difficult man to to get to know. That's true. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's just he knew what he he knew his business, but he was a. He was not the type of person that allowed people to get close to him, to, to know uh, him. It, I guess it just depends because he was, uh, how could I say it? Uh, he didn't He didn't really gravitate to everyone. He just gravitated to a few people. And mm -hmm. that's just who he was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He, he was divorced and he had two sons. His two sons are still living. His ex-wife has passed away as well. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, turning our attention to missing persons. Um, what do you know about missing persons uh, involved in Bigfootery? Bigfootery and missing persons? Not a whole lot. I mean, I'm sure David Polites, his thesis that, that some of the missing people that go missing maybe bigfoot was involved uh but i don't know if it's ever proven you know what percentage of the people that actually go missing are bigfoot related but i suspect there might be a few i agree daniel and that's a nice way to put it i i really agree um i have an opinion on that um number one i'll tell you i'll tell you right now when i retired i retired in good standing me and um um i've i've read four of his books i bought four of his books read them probably probably more than two or three times each um and uh i i don't believe i don't believe that that all the missing people out there are are bigfoot involved I do not believe that. There are a lot of reasons why people disappear or, or go missing. And I will say that that they can be any combination of crime, human trafficking, mental illness, depression, suicide, uh, misadventure, maybe getting lost someplace, uh, miscommunication, 
uh, ritualistic involvement, volunteer missing, which which is very possible, and um, other animals, predator an animals, uh, bear, cougar, whatever whatever you want to say. But um, that's a whole list of of possibilities and probabilities. But I don't believe that all the people that go missing are 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 a, a result of Bigfoot Sasquatch. I don't believe that. I, However, I do believe that, uh, as you've alluded to earlier, uh, yeah, they, you know, uh, Bigfoot does what it does. I don't know what their temperament is, but yeah, they have some hand in, in some of this stuff too. There are two famous cases, and they actually come during the same time period, 1924. One is the very famous case of Albert Osman, who was on a prospecting trip in British Columbia, and he was quote unquote abducted by a, a male Bigfoot. And he got the impression that the whole reason for the abduction, that he was the intended mate for one, one of the offspring that he had. I don't know that for sure, whether, whether his analysis or his point on the case is valid, but he was abducted, at least that's what he says. And another famous case, I think from Washington state, the guy's name was Harry Muchalot, and he was mentioned in Peter Burns' book that was published in 1976. And he also claims that he was abducted as well. And so uh, the idea of abductions or people missing, uh, that goes back uh, to 1924, and if I think, with newspaper archives that are online now that you could probably find cases that are even earlier that may in fact be related to Bigfoot. That's interesting. You mentioned new newspaper archives, you know, as a private licensed uh, investigator, that is one of the uh, resources I used. And um, I agree wholeheartedly with your, with your last comment. Um, that particular resource boasted of over, I don't know, 1 million or 1 billion news articles. It's, it was an incredible amount. You pay a, a subscription and you can do any investigation, any background. If they've been in the news, you'll find them in there someplace. But yeah. that's, that was an incredible resource. Um, I'm familiar with both of those incidents that you spoke of. Um, one in particular, whether it was Osman or Muchlot, um, he used chewing tobacco as a means of escape. Uh, he, he, he gave the uh, Sasquatch some, some chew and uh, the Sasquatch uh, took the whole can and dumped it in its mouth and, and became dizzy. And it was his time to leave, his time to escape. Saying that, there's there's a uh, there's other uh, similar uh, accounts that go back to Native American Indian females that had been taken, and they claim that that uh, pine gum, uh, the the gummy substance uh, substance from trees, was placed over their eyes when they were abducted, so as to blind them temporarily, so they can't they can't tell where they went or where the Sasquatch's uh, uh, lair was. 
And their intent with that female was to breed with male Sasquatch, which takes me to this, this point. Uh, in my research, in my study, I've come across many, many, many reports of uh, Sasquatches that look like gorillas or described like gorillas. I'm talking about hairy face, hairy bodies, uh, many reports of Sasquatch that look like a wolfman, you know, like the Hollywood rendition of, of Wolfman. Um, and then there's other reports, and in, including my own experience, where the individual is extremely hairy, except for the face. The face had no hair, or very sparse on the face, and it looked very, very human. Um, Albeit from, but the uh, but for the uh, pallid, pink uh, complexion that it had, you couldn't tell uh, what you were looking at uh, by looking at these things. So there's there's reports of blue-eyed, green-eyed, blonde-haired, even um, uh, African in appearance um, Sasquatches that that are similarly eerily uh, related to people that we see on the street, whether it's a blonde haired person or a, uh, you know, a black individual. So I have to believe that there's some kind of mixing going on between, between uh, humans and Sasquatch. What is your opinion on that? Well, it's, it's hard to say at the present time because we don't know but uh, the, the, the idea of Bigfoot abducting people, especially younger juvenile people, I would say that might be happening in some instances. And I'm just happy that David Polites, with his work on uh, abductions or the missing 411 or whatever he calls his book, that, that some of those might be Sasquatch related. I can't say all of them are because I don't know if the evidence is there. I. I honestly, I can't say that I've read any of the missing uh, books that he's produced. The only books that I have uh, that he has produced are the first two ones that were specifically on Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. So, but the idea of abductions, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but uh, it's, it's an interesting topic. There's so many uh, tangents that you can take when it comes to Bigfoot that uh, that's just one more avenue, one more off-ramp. Uh, to study. Mm. There's a wonderful, a wonderful report out of Oklahoma from one of the Native Indian uh, reservations, and the the uh, the story goes that um, the mother interrupted uh, an abduction of her child while camping. Because of that experience, she related. She related her experience with another unrelated camper and told her, <clears throat> issued a caveat, watch your child. You got, a, you got a small child with you? Watch your child at night. And, and the lady says, why? She says, because uh, something will come along and try to abduct, abduct your child. And in, in further reading into this, in some of these uh, instances, it is believed uh, by some in the native Indian circles that um, whenever 
a Bigfoot Sasquatch lose an infant, they will try to go out and, and, and get another infant, whether it's a human being or not, to replace that, that, that missing child. And in this instance, the uh, camper, the camper uh, armed with the knowledge and the uh, foremention uh, was camping one night, she reported. And she says that at night, there was a long hairy arm that came in there and she said she felt her baby, baby sleeping bag, uh, moving out of the tent. And she woke up, she encountered and confronted a, uh, a Sasquatch pulling this child out of the tent. So uh, when we talk about abductions and stuff, I find it very, very interesting. Now, uh, whoever the author is that, that that wrote these books or writing these books on these abductions and stuff. I'll say this, and I've read uh, a number of them. Uh, one of the things that I find, and nobody has ever asked me, hey, Val, come in, would you look at these things and, and tell me what you think uh, about these things? Nobody's ever come to me and, and asked me what I think about this. But what I've noticed in, in part, of, part of the stuff that I do, I look for patterns. I look for patterns that repeat themselves, whether it's a Bigfoot report, an innocuous, innocuous uh, report. I look for patterns. That's what a profiler does. That's what I do. I look for repeating patterns that happen over and over again. And one of the things that I notice in, in, some of the, in, a, in a large portion of these missing persons reports is this. Whenever a large... I'm talking about a large amount of activity stirs up when somebody goes missing, the chances of that individual being found alive are much greater than if a, a homeless poor person with no money, no affluence, um, you know, nobody, nobody caring about him or her, uh, the chances of him being found or her being found is, is nil. Very, 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 very seldom is he is he or she found alive if if they don't have the money and the affluence and the importance, you know, for for all the the searchers, the police, the activity, the noise, the helicopters, ATVs, and so forth. The chances of them being found are nil to 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 void. Now, wasn't the the the, the case of Amy Smart? Wasn't she abducted? I believe she was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that she was abducted by uh, people, though. But mm -hmm. had, had she not been ever found, that could have been one more report for David Polites to put in his book. Mm -hmm. And that was a very famous case that we all know about. Well, some of the cases that I've that I've come upon uh, that I found interesting was in these cases where uh, the the uh, victim, the miss, the missing person, whether an adult or uh, a child, uh, they be, they become very very confused. They can't they can't talk. They can't explain where they've been, how they got there. Uh, most of these people uh, are found naked. The clothes are missing. Most of these people are found with unexplained scratches scratches um some of these people uh in in a 
state of excited utterance say that they seen people, people. We were talking earlier tonight about uh, whether we call, whether we consider Bigfoot, Sasquatch animals or forest people. And some of these victims have said, you know, these, these strange people were talking a strange language and I was scared and I was running from them and, and I was hiding from these people uh, and they were looking for me. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's reports, there's one report in particular I found extremely interesting uh, is, a, um, is a report of a lady whose father was a pastor. Uh, they went to church. She went home. Her father stayed at church uh, talking with congregants. She went home and um, she disappeared. And when the father comes home, his daughter is missing. She's uh, probably, I, I don't know. I can't remember now, but she might have been in her 20s. Young woman of childbearing age, she turns up missing. Uh, the whole town comes out to search for her. They can't find her. They, they look around the house. She's just missing. And this search goes on for four days. And um, they end up finding her, Daniel. They find her, they find her in a tree, and she's naked. All of her underclothes and clothes are on, at the base of the tree, but she, they find her up in a tree, and she can't explain how she got up in a tree. You remember we were talking earlier about trophies and ornaments? Mm -hmm. Yes. Again, in the tree, she's found unexplained. She doesn't know how she got there. She doesn't know how she, you know, what happened to her. Um that's just one case. In another case, there's a case of a, a, a lot of cases of children going missing and they're found in a uh, in an island in the middle of a swamp two or three or five miles away from where they went missing. There's no way that these two and three year old children can walk that distance and, and, and cross a, a deep swamp, whether it's at night or daytime, and find themselves um, um, in a in a in a dry swamp and on a, a little island on a in the middle of a swamp, if they weren't placed there by some some individual. Um, in in my study research, uh, I I specifically look for incidents that occur around swamps. There's there's plenty of them. In one instance, uh, one child, one one missing individual was found uh, uh, partially eaten on a tree. Again, we're talking about trees. Remember, we talked about ornaments and trophies. This individual was found in a tree, laden branches and stuff. I, you know, um, you know, it's easy to it's easy to explain away these things that, uh, yeah, it could be uh, this or it could be that. But when you find all these people with all these patterns reoccurring, all these unexplained scratches, there was an individual that was on this particular show from Michigan who shared with us uh, an, an experience that he had as a child when he interacted with a juvenile Bigfoot and for some unexplained reason, other than to pound his chest like like Tarzan, it set off it set off something in this juvenile, 
where it became belligerent and threw him off of a uh, hayloft, stripped his clothes, and in stripping his clothes off, this juvenile uh, caused some very deep lacerations above his groin to the point where he had to go to the uh, hospital or something to have this uh, taken care of. So uh, in my study and research, uh, I note that Bigfoot Sasquatches don't go to get pedicures. They don't use fingernail clippers. Their fingernails have utilitarian value. They use their fingernails for knives, for can openers, uh, for, for a lot of different things. They use it for weapons. So scratches and unexplained scratches make sense. To me, it makes sense. Um, what do you say about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that all of that is happening. And uh, I, I don't have any reason to doubt it, that uh, this type of activity can take place, especially where you find a young juvenile individual, a person stranded, say, on an island or high up in a tree. The question is, how, or high up on a rocky bluff on a mountainside, mm -hmm. The question is, how did that individual get there? It doesn't seem like a little three or five-year-old could do something like this. It seems like that individual would have to have had some sort of help. Mm -hmm. And it seems like uh, likely that Bigfoot could be the solution to the question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I noticed in a lot of these books that I've read, there's no mention, very rarely is there mention of any uh, unusual footprints um, that doesn't that doesn't for me it doesn't say that Sasquatch wasn't involved in it it just means that uh, people are people people right. people then as in now there's some people that aren't familiar they're not informed they wouldn't know how to go out and look for evidence well, I, I will say something about the woods in general in North America, because we've all been in the woods, that there are a great many areas of the woods that it's just not conducive to leave tracks, mm -hmm. especially if you're in a rocky environment or a very heavy tree covered environment where you have a lot of tree uh, leaves that have fallen, that uh, oftentimes you just do not see tracks whatsoever. But that doesn't mean a Sasquatch could not have been there or say, say, for instance, you take a hypothetical, a five-year-old, five-year-old little boy being stranded on a high rocky ledge, you know, if a Sasquatch was behind that going up to that point, it's not very likely that that Sasquatch would have left tracks yeah. because it's all rocky, hard substance. Exactly. Now, uh, again, I, I, I tell you that, you know, I, I, I don't walk to the same beat as a lot of people. You know, I look at things a little differently. I, I've talked to people before and, and I ask them to try when they're out in the woods, when the ground is covered with leaves and twigs and, and debris, forest debris. Uh, if you don't carry a, a, a battery powered leaf blower, then carefully take the time. If you suspect this is a, a tracked area of, of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, what have you, 
take the time to carefully lift the leaves up, look underneath, because of the weight of these things will leave an impression in the soil. And oftentimes, you'd be surprised how many times they come back and tell me, oh, yeah, Val, you know, I see tracks there. All you have to do is look. That's all you have to do is take the leaf blower and blow the leaves aside until you, you reach the soil surface and look under there. You'll see some impressions there if they're there. Um, on the other hand, in, in my area where you have dry, in the, hot, in the summer you have dry uh, agricultural fields uh, where you think you have impressions, bring some flour with you, flour. If you see an impression there, take the flour and just blow it into the uh, impression. And if, if, if there's any kind of indentation in the soil, that flour will illuminate the impression then you take a picture of it. That's how you that's how you do the sleuth work. That's the way you do it. What do you say, Daniel? Uh, I agree. I mean, you as a police officer would probably know far more of uh, forensic techniques uh, for collecting evidence or discovering evidence than I would. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I look at this stuff. It's um, it's, it's very interesting. You know, I, I don't like going out in the woods because I don't, too much. I don't like going out there because of the deer ticks. I don't like the chemical that they spray on the um, foliage, the defoilant. Uh, I don't want that on my clothes. I don't want to bring it home. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why I, uh, you know, I refrain from going out to a lot of these different places and stuff. But um, um, I, I really. Go ahead, Daniel. I, I will say something. When I was uh, in Michigan, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, to give a talk that we went out in the field and we camped out in the field, is that I could not believe the amount of ticks that were out there. I remember coming back home, uh, flying into Los Angeles, and I opened my suitcases and I even had ticks in the suitcase. Oh, no. So, yeah, they were, they were just they were just in an incredible amount of ticks. I mean, I'm home. I come out of the woods. I'm home. I'm sitting at my computer and I, I feel something crawling on my neck and I, I reach up and, and, and pull it off and it's a tick. It's on my neck. These things were all over the place. And I try to, I try to uh, cleanse myself quite wood before I get in my car and stuff. But, um, uh, yeah, it's those are the hazards of, of going out and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I I find it very very interesting. This is what I do. This is what you do. And and I'll tell you what, it's been a it's been a big big pleasure to have you here, Daniel. What do you say, Chris? Absolutely, it's been wonderful, man. Uh, I can't uh, express the gratitude. That's for sure. It's nice to have somebody with some common sense. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, man. I mean, he rocks it. I like it. So, I did some research on him and one of another groups. So, yeah. So, I know where he's from. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today and, and, and expressing, you know, your 
point of view on the subject and everything. People are very entertained and appreciated it. But man, well, that was awesome. Thank you for having me. I didn't know we were going to be over two hours, but uh, it is what it is. And uh, I told you I'd be on the show and uh, I did it. Well, I greatly appreciate it. I'm glad you did. Very good, Daniel. Very good, my friend. I'll just tell tell everyone that uh, if they want to get a good newsletter, go to the Bigfoot Times. Bigfoot Times. And that's at BigfootTimes.net. Is that that's, correct? That's correct. BigfootTimes.net. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure and check them out. Daniel Perez. Thank you once again, sir. You have a good one. And, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, very good. I'm signing off. It's about 530. It's time for dinner. And you guys have a good weekend. What's left of it? Thank, Thank you, you Daniel. Bye-bye. Wow, man. Yes. Wonderful, man. Wonderful. So, yeah, that was that really uh, very interesting there. So, yeah, I mean, what else can you ask for? Now, next week, I'm going to try to have a, a guy from Michigan on that's going to it's going to come in and show and explain some audios that he collects. He collects some quite interesting um, audios um of bigfoot communication tonight we talked to daniel and we talked a little bit about the linguistics and the communication and stuff but uh, uh next week hopefully you'll get a you'll get a listen of of what uh they're actually picking up out here with the wonderful uh devices and stuff so that's what's in store next week yeah so should i sign off like joe biden and hail to the queen or save the queen <laughs> And which think, way do I go on or off stage? I think <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and enjoy my uh, what's left of the Father's Day and 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 thank everybody for the time and most of all, Grizz, thank you so much, my friend. We'll talk again next next week. Absolutely, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, that's a wrap. Y'all have a great day and happy Father's Day to everybody. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. Audio. I can't wait. Take Bye care, now. guys. We'll see you, Val. Bye, Grizz. Bye.